Today's episode of Idle Weekend is brought to you by Warby Parker. You can try out five new eyeglass frames for free at warbyparkertrial.com slash weekend. Welcome to Idle Weekend. I'm Danielle Riando, and I'm here with my co-host Rob Zachney to wind down another week. This weekend, we are still recovering from PAX Plague that we contracted last weekend in Boston, uh, but it was totally worth it. Uh, So PAX happened, the show is thriving, and something like E3 is sort of quietly slipping away. We're here to talk about the life and death of the video game Mega Show this weekend. So Rob, I was in Boston last weekend. I was at PAX. I did the whole PAX thing. How was your show, by the way? Let's start off with that. Uh, well, that's always the question, right? I think it's, I can't believe we're still asking it a week later. How, how's your show? How's your show going? <laughs> I know, right? Uh, I, you know, my, my show was uh, not very involved. I actually only stopped by for one day. This year I forgot to get a press badge. Uh, and I actually realized I was perfectly okay with that. So I mostly gave PAX a miss, except for uh, Saturday, I dropped in and walked the show floor a little bit, ran into a bunch of friends, uh, ran into our friend Austin Walker at the Frozen Synapse 2 booth, Excellent. and we ended up uh, hanging out for a bit, and then I basically spent the evening going to various uh, parties and hanging out with different friends. So I I, I guess I had the perfect video game trade show, right? I barely saw video games, and I spent 90% of my time... Uh, with friends, and I'm not sick, and I was well-rested for an entire weekend. Uh, so I lived the dream. Yeah, you sure did. I well, I got in, and there was a whole to-do about my tickets, actually. But that was totally fine. I was going to say, I also ran into our friend Austin Walker, but our meeting was a little bit different because we ran into each other on a stage at Paxamania, the, wrestle- the pro wrestling event, and we faced off against one another in a very dramatic showdown. Uh, so I have to say, partially because of Paximania and partially because I only played games that were really fun. I had, you know, I had kind of a whirlwind day on Saturday as well, uh, where I, I had several media appointments. I played a lot of games, but thankfully they were all cool games. You know, the, the worst thing is when you go to a show like this and you're overwhelmed and you're tired and you're walking around all day and you're playing games that aren't great. And you kind of have to do the polite thing where it's like, all right, well, I have to, I have to play this. It's my job. Uh, yeah. But, man, this is awkward. So it was great to play cool games and have fun with it. Um, and, yeah, and then saw a lot of friends and, and hung out. And I have to say, you know, we're, we're going to talk more about this sort of versus the E3 thing. But I have to say that I had a better time at PAX than I think I've ever had at PAX before. I had a really good time. The atmosphere at the show felt kind of positive and warm and inviting for the first time in several years. I've had some some weird PAX experiences, nothing horrible or anything, but, you know, a little bit of weirdness at times, you know, sort of in the past with the whole Dick Wolves thing. I, I used to go to PAX with my students, uh, especially when I taught. Um, I still teach in Boston, but now I do it remotely. But when I taught, you know, at Northeastern in, you know, sort of in-house at Northeastern, I would bring my students to the show floor. And I remember one year having to sort of like almost insulate them from from the whole sort of dick wolves thing we were in line for a panel so was that was that a super like because that year i remember going to pax east yeah and i don't remember a damn thing 
about like <laughs> dick wolves being their presence at the show floor. So for those of you who don't remember this thing, uh, this was a, a thing that just would not die and yeah. actually continued to escalate, right? It's, it's, it's that Penny Arcade had written a, a comic that was... It sort of e- made light of rape. It wasn't like, you know, it was sort of like we were, the idea was, oh, we've been raped by dick wolves all yeah. day and all night or something. And it was like this sort of goofy thing and people, you know, felt a little weird about it and kind of expressed they felt a little weird about it and then right. it was it escalated and, and, and then escalated. In, yeah. in classic Gabe and uh Tycho, especially Gabe form, yeah. uh when challenged immediately get hyper defensive and and actually get kind of aggro about the entire thing and then start doubling down on it. Yeah. Uh which which was so that just that just was a was a sour note a few years ago uh, cuz I I didn't actually have such an issue with the comic itself cuz I thought the humor was actually about the weirdness of like video game quests and yeah, sort yeah. of the callousness of of video game characters. But I understood why people also would have felt that that the way that humor was expressed was uh was offensive but then the response was kind of well if if you think i'm making rape jokes here i will show you some rape jokes yeah. and 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 that was that was weird but that was a conversation that dominated the weeks leading up to pax east at the show though i never felt the atmosphere changed all that much and i'm i'm wondering if you had a different experience yeah, it was it was a little weird. I so we're talking about 2011, uh, the Pax East 2011, and there were several things kind of going on there for both for me and also for kind of what was going on. There was that really horrible typhoon that had hit Japan, uh, like the night before Pax, or or sort of like right right before. So a lot of folks were sort of feeling, you know, rightfully a little you know sad about that. A lot of people yeah. died. It was it was a pretty horrible disaster. My grandmother had just died a few days before, and I I literally wrote her. Uh, eulogy at the PAX show floor. I sort of sat there. I was actually literally at the uh, the sort of Dance Central area, the little uh-huh. area where people can play Dance Central. And I was sort of watching kids have a really great time dancing and and sort of wrote this really nice thing about my grandmother who loved kids and loved goofiness. And, and so like, there were a lot of conflicting feelings for me personally at this show. I just remember feeling a little weird about the fact they were they were sort of selling these Dick Wolves t-shirts. <laughs> And, like, I was in line with a bunch of people that were wearing them, and so it was just this weird, like, oh, okay. <laughs> a lot of highs and lows for me that year. Um, yeah. And I, and I uh, you know, my next PAX actually was in 2013, and I spoke, and that was great. And then I sort of, not famously, but I, I was supposed to go to PAX in 2014, uh, PAX Prime or PAX West now, I guess. And I was supposed to be on the Idle Thumbs panel, and I, I didn't go because that was kind of the week that Gamergate was happening. And I had sort of spent that week hiding in a cabin in the woods, literally hiding in a cabin in the woods uh, in Lake Tahoe, sort of, um, you know, changing my bank password every night. Uh and I just, I was having so many panic attacks, and I was like, I just can't get on a plane right now and go to PAX. Yeah. Not that I thought PAX was the problem. It just, I felt so uncomfortable about being, like, anywhere public about being in games, <laughs> sort of, at that yeah. moment. That I was just like, man, I just, yeah, again, not not to blame that on PAX, because that wasn't PAX's fault. It just well, was a weird kind of conflation of things, I guess. Yeah, that's a, that's, that's a tough uh, track record. 
uh, with, <laughs> yeah. Wow, well, like time, like Pax timing. You and timing around Pax right. have never really worked out. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I, but I also think like it, it, it's totally fair. Like, you know, there, there's sort of no denying. I, I, I think it, that it's been harder to be entirely positive about Pax. Uh, in the last few years, in part because I do think there's a track record of the people who run it um, kind of going out of their way to be to be assholes at sure. times. Sure, yeah. Um, and that's, you know, that's not to say that they're just assholes, right? They're, they're also people who I think do tend to have, like, very big hearts. So, like, there's some, there's some stories I've, I've heard uh, that aren't, like, publicly known uh, that this suggests to me that they, they really are very warm, uh, big-hearted, giving individuals yeah. Uh, yeah. whose skin just happens to be a millimeter thin. Right. Uh, so, <laughs> you know, there's there's worse things to be, but there's there's that issue. And then there's the fact that I think in the last couple of years, certainly it's been harder to pretend that there isn't sort of a ugly undercurrent in a lot of game culture. Yeah. And PAX is... Uh, I think mostly for better and, and sometimes for worse, a pretty decent reflection of of gaming culture. Yes. Yeah, I agree with that wholeheartedly. Uh, so completely. what made this year feel better? I don't know entirely if there was kind of any one thing other than it just felt good to be there. I, I, I just, I you know, met with so many nice people, so many awesome people, and it, it feels like the visibility for all different kinds of people has reached a level where... I just feel comfortable there. And, you know, just talking about like how many sort of queer and trans and, and sort of people of color who were, you know, very visible at PAX this year felt awesome to me. And, and part of that, I guess, was Paximania. Like, you know, there, there's mm-hmm. kind of all kinds of people who are there and like on the stage. And that made me feel like this is like the most silly sort of lowbrow thing <laughs> you can possibly do. And here there's queer women, here there's there's trans women, here there's like people of color doing this big, goofy, kind of wonderful thing. And it's all sort of a celebration of being goofy. And that felt really, really positive to me. I, I do, by the way, really appreciate that Paximania uh, did appear to end, at least from my outsider perspective, Paximania did appear to end uh, the way most lefty associations and uh with with brutal infighting and betrayal yes exactly. Uh, as, the, as the leader of the of the lefty organization uh feels unrecognized for his accomplishments <laughs> and and uh someone else immediately uses uh some some gatekeeping to to deny them uh deny them a victory it exactly. was it was a delight watching the the indie love coalition uh fall apart uh yeah. around austin walker that was pretty special. It was a very special moment. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's just really fun and 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 god. I, I also I have to say one thing I really love about PAX is how many families are there. Mm-hmm. I saw so many people with like little kids just sort of celebrating their their kids' sort of interest in games and probably their own interest in games. And part of that, you know, I'm sort of a family-oriented person. And I really love kids, and I really love watching kids kind of, you know, just have a good time. I guess that kind of ties into the the most positive memory I had about PAX 2011, which was sort of writing that sort of thing about my grandmother while just watching kids dance and have fun and just be sort of playful and joyful. Uh, so that's really, really awesome as well. And you don't see that at other shows. Obviously, something like E3 is a trade show where it's not really about the fans. It's about selling your shit, basically. Um 
And I think this ties completely into why something like PAX is thriving beyond all, you know, reasonableness. You know, there's, God, there's four PAXs now. You know, there's Prime, or sorry, West, there's East, there's South, and there's also Australia. So there's there's all these shows, and they sell out in like a day, and people are just, you know, knocking down the doors to get in, where E3... I, I don't even know how many major publishers have sort of like dropped out this year. I remember it sort of there was EA, Disney, somebody else. Like it's just sort of like quietly dying where something like PAX is just like they cannot they cannot pack enough people into these places, like into these massive sort of convention centers. And yeah, I think it's I think it's this sort of in embracing of fans and embracing of that high, the idea of access. Um that we're seeing in all kinds of ways in games and in the way we cover games. The sort of separation between media and, and press and enthusiast, I, I guess it's like the masses and fans, is is really kind of falling away. And, and I think that kind of has to do with what, what's going on here with these different shows. Right. Although the thing that does, I guess, concern me a little bit is, is that... There's a lot of great things about PAX, and it's a it, it, it's great the way it brings people together. But at the same time, sometimes it feels like a celebration of consumption. Oh, sure. Of of <laughs> intertwining of identity with the things you consume. That I mean, this I mean, this totally ties into the same feelings we expressed uh, around Let's Plays, uh, yes. right? And 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 things like Twitch, where it's like. Well, I don't know where where's the critic in all of this, or but but I think it's a little different than that because basically, like E three does represent a sort of brute force, uh, classic marketing and sales tactics, yes. right? Like it is all about media. It's all about generating coverage. It's all about arranging. Uh, your 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 wares out on display uh, for maximum splash uh, in 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 media channels, and PAX is very much about cultivating an audience that will market to itself. Yes, right. That I mean, that that like people will 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 run around grabbing collectibles whose whose only real purpose is to further the awareness of a booth, right? <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, so and. I'm not I'm not I'm not saying that to be judging but I do sometimes feel that some of the ugliest things in 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 game culture are kind of tied to over over identification with with products and things and companies and not enough with people necessarily right yeah and so you know it's it's weird on the, on the one hand PAX is becoming a, a more diverse space, and they have actually made efforts at at being more inclusive, right? Like things like the the, the take this booth, uh, yeah, right? Where yeah. where that space, I've had so many people tell me like that 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 space has been a godsend uh, since yeah. since it showed up, uh, and and makes and makes PAXs a, a lot easier and safer to attend uh, for people who might have some anxiety issues and yeah. and things like that. Uh, so on on the one hand, I think it is becoming a more a more human, uh, kinder <laughs> space. On the other hand, though, I also see it as entirely emblematic of 
the success companies are having in getting consumers to uh, self-market. Yeah. Which is, of course, the most cost-effective thing in the world, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's free press. You know, it's it's absolutely free press, and it's it's sort of getting your own customers to evangelize for you, uh, which is what smart companies are doing right now, and it's how they're making a buck. I guess it's it's kind of how they're surviving, and uh, you know, it makes more sense for uh, you know for these companies to do this as opposed to spend. I don't even know how many million dollars on a, on a massive booth at E3 to just only reach, you know, 10% of the people who will be making YouTube videos about your game, basically. Yeah. Or the, you know, the 10% of people who maybe have the furthest reach, but not necessarily anymore, uh, meaning the press. It's all well, becoming and, and very what weird. what kind of yeah. reach, right? Like, yes. you, you can get tons of eyeballs on a story about your game, and PR people will be able to send their, their coverage reports around saying, yeah. like, we, we got, you know, X, Y, and Z to cover us, and this had that much reach, and okay, that's a success. But I think there probably is an awareness that a lot of people, their eyes will just sort of skip off the page, right? They'll, totally. they'll, they'll click on the preview, eh, they may they may never think about that game again. Uh, whereas if you can convert, uh, you know, uh, streamers and and let's players to to your cause, uh, their audience will will sort of be not 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 bombarded, but it, you know it's 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 a I think it's I think it's a <laughs> this is a case where there's no way around the word the word describes the thing. Yeah. Uh, there is greater engagement with that yeah. kind of media. Yeah. Uh, this is not as passive as somebody just seeing an article pop up on, on GameSpot. Uh, this is somebody who is sort of hanging out watching a, a favorite entertainer, uh, you know, play a thing in this, in this long form uh, entertainment form. So I, I don't know. I, I, I wonder, I wonder if like the the classic video game trade show even even has a future, yeah. Uh, at this point, uh, in the in this context, or or whether it needs to be needs to be retooled. I mean, is there anything good about it? Like, is that like you know? <laughs> I've been to a few E threes. You've you've been to a bunch. Yeah. Uh, you know, aside from the nostalgia everyone feels for hating E three, because because I do think that's kind of like <laughs> what most people talk about around E three. Yeah. They, they talk about how miserable it makes them, and in sort of this fond way. Uh, what, what, what's a, what's a value there? Like if, 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 if E3 is dying, if, if major game shows are, are starting to, uh, be replaced by things like PAX, what, are we losing anything we should care about? Yeah. I mean, especially what E3 can be, which, you know, traditionally the best thing about E3 is getting your hands on all of these games, actually having access to you know, demos of hundreds of games, you know, and, and not not that you want all the hundreds, but access uh, to actual demos, playable demos of the biggest games where you can actually get that coverage. You can actually give, you know, real impressions as opposed to, I watched a trailer. Here's my impressions of a trailer, basically. That's the, that's the supposed value. Now, the problem is, of course, when E3 becomes just, here's a trailer that I watched in a room. Uh, you know, we're not even getting that sort of hands-on time. Um, and that can be what it is for for some of the games, which kind of sucks. And it's like, yeah, okay, when you're there, it's nice to sit down and, and watch a thing as opposed to stand up in a crowded, very crowded, very loud place and sort of play something. But yeah, that's 
that's the supposed value is, is if you're pressed, you actually get access to this stuff. And also you get access sometimes, again, it depends, uh, but the value being you also get access to developers from all around the world who have come here to show you their wares. And that can be valuable to actually get interviews. Now, if they're sort of obscured behind 10 layers of PR, that's not quite as useful, of course. But uh, for for a lot of smaller games, it, it can be great to actually stand mm. there with the dev and actually get time with them and get some good quotes and, you know, talk to them, actually have a conversation. E3 is not always conducive to that, but that is supposedly the value of it. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's... <laughs> the more E3 becomes sort of a completely just sort of package deal where, where everything is just sort of showing you the package as opposed to showing you the game, uh, it becomes less and less valuable. And I think that's been happening. Yeah. Now, I've had great times at E3 where, you know, sort of Nintendo booths of yore where I've gotten my hands on, you know, the next 10 awesome Nintendo games and had a blast and actually got a feeling for what was kind of coming up next. And actually, believe it or not, I had a really great experience at E3 once, you know, sort of talking to the designer of one of those Mario versus Donkey Kong puzzle games. It had this amazing sort of design talk with this person because it was one of the smaller games and he happened to be there and was, you know, offering all this cool stuff. Uh, so you get moments like that that are like, this is what E3 should be. This should be just sort of the place where we get to play these things and we get to actually talk to devs. Um, yeah. But the less it becomes that, the the more it just completely dilutes into just more crap that, you know, isn't really all that useful to you as press, basically. Yeah, you know, when I think about most of my memorable preview experiences have actually happened at a PAX. Uh, sure, because sure. there's it's a little less formal. Um, and a lot of times when... It's weird. There's just this entire different vibe around the entire thing. Like when yeah. you're dealing with PR people around packs, a lot of stuff tends to just be like, you know, hey, if you have time, you know, you want to check out this thing at like 1030 a.m.? Yeah. Okay, yeah. fine. I'll swing by and check it out. And it's that's actually very different because usually it'll be like a developer's expecting you, but they're not like it's not you're being ushered into a briefing room or anything like right. that. Yeah. It's just you have to flag someone down, you know. Hey, I'm supposed to see you, and then you actually have an actual conversation about a game, uh, and then you might even get to play the game, and you won't be rushed through it. Uh, so in some ways, PAX is kind of harder to cover than like any three, but I, I think. Because you tend to get, because at least in my experience, I've gotten better looks at games and had like more genuine interactions with like creators. Sure, yeah. The coverage tends to be easier and and more memorable uh, overall for for me personally. Whereas I, I think when when I think about E threes and such, everything is so tightly controlled that it's <laughs> completely airless, and I, and, I, and I do wonder to an extent. You know, is it just that traditional media is dying, or is that entire mode of like publicizing your product starting to crumble a little bit? Where, like, you know what I mean? Like, no, yeah. one, like, no one gives a shit about your your trailer, right? Or at least, right. like, like you post it on YouTube, it's done. The trailer is out there. No one cares anymore. Like, right. maybe it's a, maybe it's a cool trailer, and people will be talking about it. But how many times in E three would you be ushered into like an exclusive uh, demo or something, and it's an overheated conference room, and you're just like somebody puts on a sizzle reel. Yep, and it's like, oh god, like what? Like 
what like no wonder you don't get great coverage out of that because because the entire thing is is completely lifeless uh you're basically it, it's basically e3 is explicitly about hey media here's what you're supposed to write about our game here i printed out some bullet points for you write them you pieces of shit yep <laughs> whereas whereas pax is very much more like Hey, here's our game. And I think. What do you think? Yeah. Yeah, and, and I think that's why one that that's ultimately my, my that's ultimately why one might be succeeding and 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 one is sort of on its way out. I mean, we can't underplay the fact that there's a total prisoners dilemma uh, with E3 as well, right? Like E3 isn't really dying. All the companies are still kind of doing stuff around the E3, like Media Week. It's just they're not doing it at E3 anymore. Right. Uh, they 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 want to do their own thing and not pay ESA to to have space on the show floor. Yeah, which makes all the sense in the world. Yeah, yeah. it's it's very. I don't know. I, it should it should tell you something that I don't even know if I'm going to E3 this year, and it's what a month away, you know, a month and a half away, yeah. basically. So, yeah, it's very. I don't know. PAX is kind of the future, at least the foreseeable future. And God only knows what it is after that. Maybe we're all going to be going to sort of VR conferences after this. There's going to be virtual booth space. You'll have to pay for virtual booth space. I don't know. Something <laughs> something will happen with it, I'm sure, in that way. So before we move on from PAX, uh, aside from PAX Mania, like, yeah. what... You know, what what was your highlight of of the show? Like what was the best thing you saw? What was the most fun you had? Oh my god. Um well, I know we've uh everybody's kind of talked this to death, but there were kind of uh three games that I saw that I really really loved and and had a wonderful time with. Um first one being Pyre, the sort of new super giant game, which again, it's kind of been talked to death, so I won't go on and on about it, but I I do love no, super no, no, giants. No, no, no. Don't don't be you know. put off just cuz I just cuz I was like <laughs> we're not doing an entire segment on on, on okay, Pyre. Okay, okay. Like cuz I, I I so we before the show like da- Danielle Danielle was like Hey, we should talk about Pyre. And I flashed back to my my day of PAX, where literally I had five conversations about Pyre, about Pyre. in the space of three hours. Yeah. Uh, so I was like, no, I can't. I can't do that. I can't do it. No, but seriously, there's people here who've not gotten that speech. They have not. They've not heard the gospel of Pyre. All right. Uh, so so what 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 the hell is Pyre? Let me speak the gospel of Pyre to you, Rob and listeners. It's, you know, it's a super giant game. It's super, super colorful. It's nothing like the other super giant games. It is a blend of, yeah, I'm so sorry to do this, the meets meets, but it, it just makes things quick. So I'll, useful, I'll just yeah. do it. I'll just do it. It's kind of a blend of the Banner Saga's sort of storytelling mode where you're making decisions and you're actually literally in a wagon that's sort of going through a very beautiful, colorful world. And NES ice hockey. <laughs> basically sort of in the combat mode. So you're making decisions. You are this sort of exiled person from the Commonwealth, which is funny playing it in Massachusetts, of course. Um, uh, this this sort of colorful, high fantasy, very, very beautiful world. You're in exile and you meet these three sort of travelers. There's a small one, a medium-sized one, and a large one. Uh, Ruki, Hedwin, and Jody. Jody Riel, I think, is the, uh, the sort of uh, woman's name. And you go off on this wagon and you're exploring this sort of weird world with your other friendly exiles. And every now and then you go into these combat sequences, which are a ritual, the idea of being ritual combat. Uh, and it's sort of 
an arena and it feels very much like a sports game, actually, sort of like a little bit of a strategy based take on a sports game, a little bit of soccer, a little bit of basketball. But I use the NES ice hockey example because you basically you have a heavy character, you have a medium character and a light character, all with different speeds and different sort of attributes and abilities. And you need to take a ball and put it into a goal, basically. I mean, it's a, you know, an orb and a fire, but that's that's kind of what's going on. It is so much fun. I, I was hooked kind of immediately. Uh, it's it's very accessible. You sort of get it right away, even though, of course, you're going to be leveling up all your attributes as you go through the game and getting more abilities. But, you know, the, the very simple idea of, like, here's the ball. You have, you know, here's your team. Here's the ball. Here's the goal. And here's kind of what you what you have, the tools in your tool belt. It's just, just awesome. I don't know. I, I've always really loved the, the Supergiant games for their storytelling and their worlds, but also the fact that they always have interesting, good combat that never feels sort of the same from game to game. And that, that to me, that's very few game companies kind of always do that. Uh, you know, actually have great story, great worlds, yeah. and really, really fun and interesting combat. You kind of get one or the other a lot of the times. Um, but, you know, uh, it certainly depends. Uh, so I guess that's my spiel. I'm really looking forward to it. I think it's going to be awesome. Supergiant has not let us down yet. You know, I certainly think Bastion was maybe a better game than Transistor, but Transistor was still rad and colorful and weird and interesting and also had really great combat. So, yeah, it was really cool. I also I, I'm played- a little concerned oh, yeah, that this ahead. sounds like an entire game made out of Blitzball, though. Uh, I mean, it kind of is, but... I, but I don't better mind than that. Yeah, it's it's yeah. much better. It's much more fun already than Blitzball was. And I don't know. They just they do such a good job with the, the sort of world building elements as well. Can I, just, can I just complain about Blitzball for a second? You can't, please. There's probably about people Blitzball. who are like, what's Blitzball? And <laughs> let me tell you what Blitzball is. Final Fantasy. So Blitzball <laughs> was the sport played in this played in this one world in Final Fantasy X. Yeah. Uh, and you played a you played a blitzball star. Your main character was like the 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 David Beckham of <laughs> of blitzball in his world, uh, which is this made up sport where like people go and they like it's played underwater and you're sort of like swimming around and somehow it's like really like fast like kinetic sport that despite everyone being underwater. Look, it's Final Fantasy, right? So it just like it just works. <laughs> but the thing is. So it's this turn-based game, uh, a little bit like a, a little bit like uh, a little bit like lacrosse, I guess. Let's say yeah, there's there's, yeah. there's a little bit like there's there's some ball control, there's passing. Uh, you're you're trying to advance it to to a scoring position. It's sort of a tug of war type thing. Okay, fine. Your first introduction to Blitzball, though, in that freaking game is <laughs> God Final Fantasy. You're so fucking dumb. <laughs> Okay, so your character is attacked by a giant, like, kraken thing in the opening of of the game. Yeah. And sent to a different reality. And in this different world, uh, which appears to be, like, the far future of of your own world, but who who, who really can say? Yeah. Blitzball's become, like, a religious rite. Like, people play the shit out of Blitzball. (laughs) It's the thing. Okay, cool. Okay. So you're the best Blitzball player of your generation. You're amazing. You're a celebrity. You're a star. The game has all been like, you're the best at Blitzball. And so there's this thing. You're, the first time you get to play the game is you're in this new world and like you've got to play in this local like Blitzball league. And it's this classic 
Oh no, we need a blitzball player. Who can who can fill in? And you're like, this is gonna be sweet. Like because now, now this the shitty character that you've been playing for like, you know, three hours at this point, Titus. Oh yeah. He's finally gonna get to do something useful rather than like whine like a clown. Yep. Uh so <laughs> he plays blitzball. And he sucks. Like you, like you get one, you get one chance. You you get one chance to 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 play this this blitzball match, and you know the story goes on whether you win or lose. But I was like, no, like I like my character, my character's garbage, right? He might he sucks at literally everything, like emotional stability, no maturity, no perspective, none whatsoever. But if there's one thing this game has told me is they can play the game of blitzball. Yeah. He had and one job. Oh yeah. god, he had one job, and he sucks <laughs> so badly at it. He can't like like everyone else is playing blitzball, and this dude is like a crappy character in like blood ball, where it's oh. like, hey, quick, pass the ball to me, guys, and like the ball just falls off Titus's hands or whatever, oh. and he loses it, and you you lose. Oh. So I played that thing. I played that game like thirty times trying to get a victory, and I couldn't. It couldn't be done. Like it, I, like there are some people that like, there's ways to do it. But I could not figure out how to get Titus to stop being such crap at Blitzball. And I have, I have nursed this hatred ever since because it was a stupid game. <laughs> yeah. And your first introduction to it in Final Fantasy X was profoundly negative. And then that's the mini game that kind of runs through Final Fantasy. Every Final Fantasy game has one. Uh, Final Fantasy X's was was Blitzball, and after that, it's like, hey, you want to play? You want to play more Blitzball? You can just go around and, and play more Blitzball. And I was like, go to hell! Like, I don't know. Like, I don't know how we're living in the post-apocalypse here, and somehow Blitzball players have only gotten better. Yeah, but but there we go. Uh, so, I guess when when you start talking about Pyre and and the sort of uh, combat sports mechanics, I start to get a little bit. A little bit nervous. I start having some flashbacks. Uh, I see the to... pyre sort of symbol burning in your eye. Just sort yeah. of like, Blitzball. Not yeah. that again. Just it's this like, like absolute PTSD sort of moment. Guess of, what, Rob? No. Blitzball's back. It's a new game from Supergiant. <laughs> Everyone's going to love it this time. Yeah. Well, you're not wrong. It's it's a little bit Blitzball-y, but it's actually fun. So, uh, you know. Yeah, and, and it's a super will. giant game, so you're not going to have a character like Titus, right? Or at least you're not going to have a character voiced like Titus. Nope, it's going to be pretty rad. And I have to say, one little nice note: uh, you get to sort of choose your preferred gender pronoun at the beginning, which is really nice. And like one of those nice little touches, it's like such an easy thing to have. Sunless Sea actually did this as well, which was super super cool. Uh, one of those nice little things that's like, oh, this is going to be an inclusive game without it being this like, look at us, we've made an inclusive game. You know, it was it was one of those nice little touches that I I really dig seeing. It's a cool thing to yeah. see. Yeah. Um, quickly, I won't even go into it too much, but I also played Outlast 2, which is scary. Oh, and no, you terrifying. gotta go into it. You gotta go into it. All right, I'll go into it. Because Rob- Outlast 1 was yes. all like claustrophobic, like spooky hallways and being chased around like tiny little, like, uh, rundown mental hospital rooms. Yes. Uh, and it was really scary as hell, but it was kind of, I found a one trick pony. Sure. And also, it was like, okay, so they've, they've figured out how to make, abandoned old institutional buildings with like 
terrifying predator scary. Yes. Uh, okay, that's it's effective, but I, I don't <laughs> see it being something I'd be interested in in doing again. But I gather Outlast Two is totally different. Totally different. Oh my god, it's so Catholic. It is so Catholic. Whoa, whoa, whoa! Uh, yeah. I, was, I was talking about the 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 prairie gothic aspect of it, but but it's Both. Catholic as well. Yes. So you are in the you're again you're a journalist and you're in the southwest. It's the rural Arizona desert. Uh, is where you are and you kind of uh, you're in a car accident and you stumble upon this like horrifying farm where there's of course uh crosses burning there are crucifixion actual crucifixions happening there is a manger of blood there is just the most horrifying sort of catholic imagery sort of pushed must into be this good sort friday of, like, yeah right I, yeah. yeah they did it perfectly uh with this like absolutely like you know, Southwestern vibe as well. It, it is so effective and so terrifying. And I jumped and I screamed uh, and did all the things that you should do at a game like this. Um, it's really, really awesome. I'm, I'm really happy they're moving away from that sort of like, it's a mental institution. Now it's like, here are the psychotic killers who are religious zealots. I don't know why that's more effective for me. Probably because I went to Catholic school my entire life until college. Uh, but all of that imagery is like, wow. You know, there, there are people sort of talking about the Bible in the background and talking about religious, you know, Oh, wait, so, so hang on. Like, there's people around. Oh, yes. And they chase okay. you and they want to kill you. Because Outlast was all like, it was completely monster, devoid of people yeah. except for like one, there's like one monster at a time, right? That was yeah. kind of how that how that game rolled. Uh, so, so here it's more like uh, like creepy, terrifying cult. Creepy, terrifying cult. Yes, uh, but with all that sort of like really steeped in Southwest, almost yeah. like you know, I, I don't know exactly. Uh, you know, it's like little bits of Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but not Texas. Does that make sense? Right. It's sort of like way more you know West. <laughs> yeah, it's super super Southwestern, uh, um, and almost like a little bit of, of of even sort of Mexican flavor as well. Like the, well, yeah, that the makes of, sense for yeah. for being Catholicism. In the Southwest. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, and the Catholicism. Um, God, it's so terrifying. something I wanted to ask is yeah. like, how does the new environment feel? Because I know one reason Outlast was the way it was is because they were a new studio, and resources were limited. You had yeah. to you, you had to sort of wall off the world and and trap the player in uh, sort of claustrophobic environments because you know that's that, it's easier to make those feel rich uh, than it is to build a, a sort of expansive world uh but yeah. the southwest like you have to have a feeling of openness and, and, and vastness right if, if you're gonna if you're gonna make it work how does it carry that off it does it really well actually uh so there's a chase sequence where you're in a cornfield so instead of sort of uh making you feel like oh I, i'm walled in by you know just literal walls it feels instead like oh my god i'm on this i'm in this completely desolate place, but I can't just run off into the desert because that won't do me any good. You know, it's sort of like there's no roads. You feel like you're in this sort of isolated world in the middle of literally nothing. And it does this incredible chase scene in this cornfield where there's all these sort of, you know, psychotic killers with their flashlights and you need to be quiet and sort of go in these, you know, these corn stalks and the corn stalks kind of like make noises as you're going past them. And so it's incredibly creepy. And, you know, the stealth mechanics are still there. You can hide in a barrel. You can hide in a sort of water trough for animals. You can hide in the corn stalks themselves. Uh, but it does a really, really great job with the environments without making it feel too limited, which is awesome. You know, so you're actually outdoors for a huge part of this demo. Uh, and it feels like you're outdoors. 
Um, so yeah, just very, very clever use of the environment. Yeah. Uh, very, very cool. Oh, that so, sounds great. Yeah, it, it was awesome. Like I said, I played really cool games at PAX, so that, that always helps uh, <laughs> when you feel positive about something. So yeah, yeah, I think that's that's probably good for our PAX talk. I think we should go into our weekend correspondence now. But first... A note from our sponsors. So it turns out that I am easily influenced and intimidated in the context of a glasses store. And I discovered this, actually, at GDC a couple years ago when I went shopping for some sunglasses. (laughs) And I just wanted to find some cheap sunglasses because, you know, cheap with polarized lenses, like not, you know, not terrible. But I just wanted some some nice, cool things I could wear around and and, and not look like an idiot. (laughs) And I tried to find a cheap, affordable pair of sunglasses uh, on Market Street in San Francisco. And it apparently was impossible, and I stumbled by accident into Sunglasses Hut, thinking that hut implied modesty and (laughs) modest means. Uh, And the the saleswoman there was one of the coolest people I've ever encountered. Like, looked like a cyberpunk anime character. Like, her hair was sculpted (laughs) into a dagger uh, in, in front of her eye and bleached blonde. Um, and she gave me a few pairs to try out, and the cheapest of them was like four hundred fifty dollars. Okay. Yeah. And I was like, "Do you have anything closer to a hundred dollars?" And she looked at me like I was dirt on her shoe, and was like, <laughs> "I'm not sure you're in the right store." <laughs> And then I was like, how dare you? And started, like, I picked up, like, the $700 Ray-Bans and was doing the math in my head. Like, could I afford afford these glasses? Like, I've got room on my credit card. Sure, I can make this happen. I'll I'll show you who's a person of means. I totally belong in the sunglasses hut. And I almost did it. Except for at the last moment, I realized that I would probably be killed by my girlfriend if I'd done that. (laughs) But the point is, I really can't go into glasses stores because inevitably I will find frames I like. And then inevitably someone will be like, oh yeah, those are $800. And I won't be able to back out. So I just avoid glasses stores now. I just, I'm just going to wear these, these ugly old glasses until I die apparently. (laughs) Because if a cool salesperson comes up to me and, like, says, I don't think you can afford these, I will mortgage my house or sell a kidney uh, trying to get them. And I can't afford to do either. I don't have a house, and I want to keep my kidneys. You don't need to go to that spiky-haired lady ever again in your life. You can just get Warby Parker's. Warby Parker specializes in designer frames at affordable prices. You can go to warbyparkertrial.com slash weekend and choose five frames that you like. Warby Parker will ship them to you for free, let you try them out for five days, and you pick what you like. They'll pay shipping on whatever you send back. <laughs> That's amazing. How does all this work again? You just go to warbyparkertrial.com slash weekend and follow the instructions on the site. And with that, it is time to open up the first of our weekend correspondence. Our first email comes from Yatsud, and Yatsud writes, Greetings, weekenders. 
I have way too many games that I have yet to complete or even start. <laughs> there is just simply not enough time in the world to enjoy everything that we would want or even fully intend to do. But with that being said, I have spent loads of time in games that I enjoy, but I have sunk innumerable hours into other oddities that I would not say are my favorites. <laughs> A quick look at my Steam playtime tells me obvious time sinks that I would instantly call some of my favorites in their respective genres. And I'm feeling slightly disgusted with myself for some of these numbers. <laughs> 120 hours in Final Fantasy XIV, A Realm Reborn. 60 hours in Stardew Valley, 24 hours in Path of Exile, and even 24 in Shovel Knight. The real standout here is Sonic All-Stars Racing Transformed, <laughs> weighing in at 80 hours. Don't get me wrong, I had a blast with Racing Transformed, but I had no idea that I've lost over three days of my life to said game. So in deciding to spend so much time with these, with these games, I have not finished loads of other excellent titles. I can't help but feel that at a glance, there was so much gaming time and money wasted. <laughs> Do you think it's okay to spend the vast majority of your free game time in games that you will never complete, but have so much fun with while essentially abandoning other potentially just as fun games uh, that are just waiting to be experienced? Keep casting all the pods, Yatsud. Oh, God. Well, first of all, Yatsud, I don't think you should feel bad because nope. Sonic... All-Stars Racing Transformed is such an awesome game. <laughs> it's like the best Mario Kart that nobody ever acknowledges is actually the best Mario Kart. Uh, so don't feel too bad. I, I mean, I think obviously what Yasuda is talking about here is, is serious FOMO, right? There's so yeah. many choices that we all have that, you know, we always want to be like, no, I'm going to spend my time with the best X, Y, or Z, you know, the very best of this game. I don't want to waste my time with these pretenders to the throne. And... Well, you know, while that's a, certainly a valid feeling, you know, um, I don't know. I don't know. You know, like, if you're having fun with the games that you're playing, if you're getting something out of it, you know, not just having fun, but if you're having some kind of experience that feels worthwhile to you, God, I think that's okay. You know, I, this is this is a hobby. This is supposed to be something that feels good to you. And I don't think there is such a thing as sort of the optimum perfect experience with gaming. I don't think there's such a thing as the best necessarily of any one genre. And frankly, I understand what he's saying here. Like, I, I think sometimes I have a better time with games that are not necessarily the very best thing. Uh, you know, sometimes I have more time with the sort of, uh, sorry, more fun with the sort of comfort food games mm -hmm. that we all kind of enjoy. And I think that's that's really okay. That's an okay thing to feel, certainly. So, oh man, that reminds me of a conversation I was having on Twitter with uh, with another listener. Uh, basically, and I, I I can't pull up this conversation right now, so I don't I don't quite remember uh, who I was talking to. But uh, this, this listener brought up like asked me about junk food games, right? Sure. And I sort of had this thought, like I don't think I don't think there I'm not sure there are junk food games uh, yeah. really because. I think unlike trash TV, where you can sort of get passively caught up in a story and, you know, just you're like, you're not really enjoying it necessarily, but you're, you're, you're sort of on a narrative hook and you just, you're just sort of watching just to keep watching and seeing what's going to happen and maybe soak up more, more of a vibe of, of a production that, that you dig for some reason. Yeah. Like, it's possible to have sort of enjoyment of something like that while while still feeling like 
this wasn't good. This wasn't a good use of your time. Yeah. Uh, this wasn't this. This wasn't something you'd ever recommend. Uh, it, it wasn't even that enjoyable. I think games, even 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 silly games, I think still require a little more from you to to get invested in, right? Like yeah. if if like. If, if a game is if a game is chasing you off uh, for for some reason, um, it's you're not going to stick with it. You know, like I, I, that's that's my feeling at least. Now there are there are certainly games that that I've encountered in, in the past that that don't. Uh, quite fit this mold, right? Like there are games I I've spent way too much time in and and grew to kind of hate myself for playing that much. Uh, Kingdom is is one <laughs> uh, a great a great indie game, like legitimately highly recommended. There's a lot of exciting things cool coming game. for it. Yeah, uh, but but just an absolute nightmare when it came out because it had this awful end game. But 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 I was hooked. Yeah. Uh, but but anyway, my, my point is like I think even I feel like games are. Games are easy to underrate because they don't seem like serious or they don't like necessarily scream like high quality, like considered meaningful experience. But like you said, Sonic All Stars Racing Transformed, um, that game looked easy to dismiss. It's a yeah. Sonic game yeah. with 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 go karts. Of course, that's going to be dumb, but it wasn't. <laughs> it was so it, good. <laughs> yeah, and, and 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 so I think that's an that's an easy game to sort of be like, yeah, I'm just playing, I'm just playing uh, Sonic All Stars Racing, yeah. uh, ironically or whatever. I'm just yeah, yeah. looking me wasting my time on this dumb game <laughs> that is actually really well crafted and is, is feather light. And it like playing, spending time on it is is just a joy. That's that's meaningful. Yes, completely agree. Our next email comes from Aaron. Aaron writes, "Dear Idlers, related to last week's discussion, uh, I believe he's uh, speaking about Dark Souls. I really like games that promote mastering them and broaden or enrich the player's experience in doing so." Kerbal Space Program's career mode has two important currencies that provide a progression mechanic in that mode. Funds are used to pay for spacecraft parts and are earned for completing contracts and passing various milestones like landing on the moon for the first time or passing a velocity landmark. Science is earned by using experiments installed on spacecraft in various situations and is used to unlock ship parts inside the tech tree. Ironically, most progression systems seem to exist to stymie progress by limiting uh, player verbs, but for this game, I feel like this way of gating progression is essential for new and intermediate players. Mastering these parts and pushing the limits of what can be done with them is necessary to unlock more parts, but a player will also gain critical knowledge and skill. I find this in sharp contrast to something like a Far Cry skill tree, which is basically just shortcuts or cheats, and any power the player gains isn't reflected by any particular skill, but instead time spent doing chores. Aaron, I think you're absolutely right. I have not actually sort of... Uh, Kerbal Space Program is a game I've always sort of been very curious about, but I've not played it. But that sounds incredibly satisfying to me, and actually sort of ties into learning something that actually feels like you're learning an actual skill, or you're learning something that, that feels useful uh, there's something really satisfying about that as opposed to, well, I pressed the button and the mechanic made sure it all worked. You know, now I'm really powerful at sort of uh, killing animals or whatever in a in a Far Cry game. So, yeah, that sounds super rad. Thank you for for that, Aaron. I wish there were I wish there were more games that allowed for a high degree of complexity, but still made the process of learning that complexity fun. Yeah. If you try to play the Arma games, 
there's there's a really authentic, exciting military shooter sim underneath Arma. But to figure out the Arma games, you have to go through this endless series of tutorials that teaches you, A, how unbelievably complicated they've managed to make shooter movement. Uh, but but then also, it, it like literally every single weapon system, everything you'll interact with has to be explained. And only once you've learned all this, can you really then go play the game that they've created, right? So you have to you have to have mastered like all the infantry controls, all the the the, the team coordination mechanics, all the vehicles and stuff like that. And it sort of feels like you when when you sort of get into Arma, your first hours you, you kind of I've always sort of felt like you have this really lousy choice. Uh, you can either basically study Arma for like hours, learning how to play it. At which point, maybe you'll discover the fun in Arma, <laughs> uh, or you can dive right in and just be completely confused and and get nothing done. And I think this is really common to any sort of simulation game. Uh, probably also true to a lot of RTSs, right? Like how many games open with, you know, move the camera to the left, soldier, and, and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah. But you know, I, I feel I, I feel like that that thing that that Kerbal's doing, uh, which is let you explore the most basic elements of a game and work up from there in a fun setting and a meaning and with a meaningful challenge attached to it is really really valuable it's just most games haven't figured it out or or just don't lend themselves to it yeah our next email comes from Merzad. Merzad writes, Hi, Idle Weekenders. Love the show. On your latest episode, you received listener mail regarding the costs for gamers to obtain and play games. I was a tad confused because playing extremely low-resource intensive games on PC legally for free is fairly easily through things like classic console emulation or games from Itch.io, etc. The listener mentioned how Let's Plays are entertaining, and in some ways, I feel they can be more entertaining than playing the game oneself, which is probably a taboo thing to say. But that leads me to burnout on games. A lot of different podcasts talk about game difficulty, fulfillment, and frustration this past week regarding Dark Souls 3 and Hyperlight Drifter, etc. I've not played these games, but I found it fascinating how this topic comes up again and again when it comes to games. So I think Let's Plays and Burnout are actually related. With Let's Plays, you get perhaps 40 to 60% of the reward with 0% of the frustration and usually a clever commentator to boot. And has been discussed on the show before, some people's sense of fulfillment, including mine to some degree, is partially based on whether or not an experience taught them something. With the exception of niche simulation, programming, or abstract strategy games, game skills acquired are not particularly valuable. But with a book, movie, TV show, or piece of music, you often feel you have learned something new, whether it be filmmaking technique, new vocabulary, a new style of thinking, or a new style of thinking about something. Is this something more games can break through on? Uh, a couple of things here, uh, especially with the sort of first point about sometimes it's more fun to watch a Let's Play than play a game. I think that's 100% valid and certainly makes sense for things like speedrunning. I will never be able to speedrun a game unless it's Donkey Kong Country, of course. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, I, I would only ever imagine that being a complete exercise in frustration. I mean, it's certainly true. I, I played... 12 I, I have been stuck on a boss in Dark Souls 3 for 12 hours of in-game time at this point. More, you know, I've spent a day of my life on this boss. Uh, just, 
just banging my head against a wall. It's probably not fun for everybody sort of watching that process either. But in a Let's Play where you get to edit out all the crap and, you know, just sort of either watch somebody who's skilled or watch somebody who's not skilled finally persevere, you're absolutely right about sort of getting 40 to 60% of the reward of seeing progression, of, of sort of seeing what the game has to offer without being really annoyed and really aggravated and, and having wasted chunks of your life on something that's difficult and, you know, as you're saying, not necessarily valuable outside of playing the game itself. Uh, I'm, I'm even at a point with, in Dark Souls where I am, my brain is able to see what the strategy is. My brain is able to see the patterns of a boss, but I'm not executing. My fingers are not doing the thing I want them to do at the right time. I'm out of sync with the game. And that's incredibly frustrating and annoying. And being able to just see it be done, be, be able to sort of see the performance of the game uh, would be really nice right now <laughs> for myself. So yeah, I think you're right about that. And I don't think it, it should be taboo. Like some games are just going to be a lot more interesting to kind of watch somebody who knows what they're doing play than to play yourself, especially these very difficult games or, or very sort of, you know, difficult to, to sort of grasp or wrap your hands around literally sort of games. And the second point about, you know, sort of you can learn something new or, or new vocabulary or new style of thinking or new filmmaking technique. I would like to see more games that kind of, of do things like that. I feel like I have learned uh, actual things about the real world from games, but vanishingly few games are using sort of real world topics and real world uh, inspirations. Many, many games sort of use other games as their inspiration. And this is the sort of thing you see mm -hmm. in every talk and every panel of every everything where people are like, where do you get your inspiration? And they say, don't just use other games, use books, use movies, use other inspiration, um, which is great. And I would love to see that. Uh, but it, it, it feels like a cliche at this point to even say that, which is funny. So yeah, I mean, it certainly depends on sort of the... Uh, the types of games that you're playing and the types of experiences that you're having. But I think there is a lot of room for that, certainly on that second point. Yeah. I think I'm a little old fashioned because I still, I don't really get watching people play games. Like I find it kind of dull. Like, you know, <laughs> yeah, like I would, like I, that's always time I could be spending playing something. Sure. Right. And like, if I'm not really playing a game, I, I tend not to be, that interested in it uh maybe the, the exception is the occasional like strategy game uh like let's play where like somebody's doing something that i haven't figured out and they're sort of like revealing the the way a game really works uh speedrunners do this to an extent a, as well sure but yeah I, I i i think for me i don't feel like i i do get that reward but i i totally understand the the, the feeling why it is well let me put it this way 40 to 60 percent of the reward is like a little too watered down for my taste like sure. it's it, like it's, it's like 40 to 60 percent the experience of playing the game right and to me that just feels a little like desaturated a little washed out uh and I, I i'm also probably just a little impatient with a lot of the a lot of the personalities that that people tend to direct me to when it comes to watching uh you know youtube commentators and, and such. yeah that's a really really fair point too yeah for sure but you know it's funny like the whole you feel like you've learned something new when you when you listen to you know book movie tv is that just cuz 
our culture prizes these things and says like this is good this is good for you like this is it is virtuous to consume this entertainment because it is it is imparting something to you uh which i don't necessarily disagree with but i'm not sure if i'm not sure if it if it does like i'm not sure if what a lot of these things impart is necessarily uh more valuable than than the type of the type of things you can you can take away from from a game as well uh games i i guess aren't games aren't great at like meditating over large life issues or cultural sure. issues like it would be very hard for for like gaming's madmen to exist right where it's like you know <laughs> yeah. where's where's the game that's going to sort of encapsulate an entire era uh and and the changing uh work and and, and social dynamics uh in in this period that's that's a hard thing for for a game to do but at the same time like who's like you know is that is that actually any more valuable than than the skills you get for solving witness puzzles like you know is 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 what you draw from watching like a a, a prestige drama somehow more useful than than what you get from screwing around on uh you know the division all night i don't know and also a thing to bring up not all <laughs> books and movies are going to impart great wisdom on you either uh nope. you know i was just thinking of like Okay, you know, if you want to go read whatever trashy novel, like that's great and that's awesome and provides entertainment and that's valuable in itself. Entertainment is a valuable thing in the world, uh, but it's not necessarily going to impart, you know, great wisdom upon you. Uh, yeah. <laughs> for sure. So, Rob, are you watching, listening to, reading? Are, are, you, are you just is something setting your world on fire right now? Well, I was, uh, you know, Friday night at PAX. I didn't go. Okay. I stayed in and I watched Mad Max Fury Road. Yes. Oh, my God. I am so happy. Please. That was an experience. <laughs> uh, and I'm, now now I really am kicking myself that, that I didn't make time uh, to, to go see it in theaters. Sure. I mean, what's to say? What, what, what's to say about this? Uh, for, first, <laughs> I can't remember the last time I watched something that... So immediately, like, there's no setup time in that movie. Like, the movie starts and you're just in it. Yeah. You're like, it, it's, you're sort of waiting for the action to sort of ramp up. No, it, it starts at like a fever pitch. And the moment we started the movie, like, we didn't, we couldn't move a muscle basically for the next like 40 minutes, right? Excellent. Like, it was, it was like the movie starts and then all hell breaks loose and it keeps topping itself. Like, you keep thinking, like, this isn't going to keep getting crazier, right? And somehow <laughs> it keeps getting crazier, uh, until like 45 minutes in where the movie pauses for its first breath. Yeah. Uh, but it was just one of the most, it is, it is a powerful film in, in the sense that, like not in the way we mean like with moving dramas, right? It's powerful and it is just like raw filmmaking power. Like it is just it is just spectacle, it is imagery, uh it is it is dramatic action. Uh I could not take my eyes off it. That is one of those movies that works for me on so many levels. 
Uh, and that's that's so rare for me. Like most of the time when I watch something, even if it's something I really, really enjoy, um, something isn't working for me, but I'm like, okay, but I'm enjoying it on this level. The acting is really cool. Okay, I'm in it for the acting. Or, you know, a, a perfect example of this sort of phenomenon for me is something like Ex Machina, where I really like the story. I really like the writing. I like the themes. You know, most of that movie is really working for me. Uh, but there are some things that don't work as well. Fury Road for me is like, I don't even know how this is possible. Like, I'm enjoying this on a craft level of the just the pure filmmaking of the the incredible cinematography, the fact that they did this with practical effect. You know, like all of that is working for me. That, Plus, the, yes, yes, go on. No, I, that, that that part was the like I'm watching that and I was like, this couldn't real like yeah. The fact that they actually like built these cars and like had them running out there in the desert is is madness to me oh, it's amazing yeah madness perfect yeah um yeah like on that level it was it was working for me on the storytelling level of how basically just how spare and perfect there is no fat in this movie it is it is absolutely just like all killer no filler you know in terms of action and character and the acting is also fantastic for like this kind of absolutely fucking goofy sci-fi post-apocalyptic movie like i cared about these people without any of that sort of exposition and setup charlie's theron is amazing in it I, just everything about it and of course yes the part that everybody kind of talked about when it came out that like this is like an incredibly woman power kind of feminist sort of film that sort of is is imagining an order of, of the world. Like, this is imagining, like, a world where women can be in power, can take over power and, and sort of coexist with men. And, like, just the sort of implicit messages of what's happening in this movie are also so fucking amazing. Like, it's so rare for me to, to go to a movie and feel all of these things at once, especially an action movie, especially a sci-fi movie, especially something that is allowed to be this weird in this, you know, this world of, of big budget action movies. It, it feels like something that came out of like, like my absolute fantasy world, you know, like, like this, how can this be real? This is wonderful and amazing on so many levels. Um, sorry, I'm gushing, but I'm no, just so excited that you I, saw this and had this great experience with it. <laughs> yeah, it was, it, it was incredible. Um, I, I was sort of amazed in, in every action sequence, uh, I thought the movie had had a great look. Yeah. Uh, and, and usually I'm someone who hates heavy use of filters, uh, but but sure. here it, it it worked really well. Some of the shots, like there's this moment where they're racing. Okay, there's 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 two shots that that really stuck with me. Uh, one is in the first chase where Charlize Theron is leading her little convoy um, away from uh, the the villain and Morten Joe. Yes. And her crew doesn't know yet that she's sort of defected. Uh, but so she's in pursuit and she's being pursued. But you start with this, uh, it looks like a helicopter shot over the pursuers. And you hear like the wailing guitar and the war drums. Yeah. They've got strapped to the back of this like, <laughs> like the rock and roll truck, I guess yeah. you'll call it. Like it's, it's, it's really weird. Like the Doof is, Warrior. Some, yeah. That guy. There is some brutal legend, uh, like oh design God, happening yeah. all over this movie, but. <laughs> It starts and like the, the, the Charlize Theron's truck and her convoy are just like these little specks on the horizon and you're sort of, you know, almost like riding alongside the pursuers. And then the camera sort of lifts up and takes you across this like threading roadway across the desert 
uh, over the, the, the herd of cars chasing, uh, this little convoy and then catches up with the convoy and you get the sense of the immensity of the space, right? And the, and the speed at which they're moving. And the, I get, you know, the, the fact that it's all, it's all practical effects, the fact, like, it, it, it all just, let, let me put it this way. How many times have you seen the sweeping helicopter shot in like Hollywood epics where like the like Lord of the Rings does this all the time where the shot like has no power because it's really fast. Uh, it doesn't linger over anything because you can't you're not meant to pick out detail because if you can pick out detail, you'll see the the limitations yeah. of the CG. You'll see the, you, you'll see all the corners they cut right to create the, the, the scene they're they're suggesting that scene isn't really there. It's just this idea they're trying to get. In your head. Yeah. Here, the show, the, the shot's actually a little slower because they actually don't want to hide details from you, right? It's a movie that rewards lingering over. Um, and so that, that shot sort of stuck with me. The other one was just this, it was practically a still image. Uh, the, the, the trail of cars, uh, charging into this, this massive dust storm, uh, which was just, otherworldly and gorgeous uh you had all these these tiny little cars racing into this you know the, the this this storm that, that fills the horizon uh from ground to sky and it's it's terrifying and otherworldly and just utterly haunting uh so yeah absolutely adored uh that uh, just absolutely adored that movie oh yeah God, I am so happy that you saw it and really enjoyed it. It makes me, it like gives me joy. <laughs> it gives me joy that this was allowed to exist. And I think you are going to be delighted with my pick this weekend. Rob, I have gotten so into The Americans, the FX series about yes. uh, Carrie Russell and Matthew Reese, who are, uh, you know, sort of pretending to be Americans. They are, you know, a boring suburban couple who live in the DC suburbs uh, with their kids in the early 80s. And it is, they are actually super agents kgb like super agents not sleeper agents i suppose but they you know they're pretending to be americans and really they're doing all this incredible sort of high-powered spy activity for the kgb it is oh my god uh it's, it's honestly hard to pick out all the things that i love about this show it works as a really awesome kind of domestic drama it works yes. as an incredible spy show that has these amazing action sequences sometimes it works as this just really tense piece of filmmaking as well. And the amount of sort of implied value, you know, the, the implied messages about this show, about political machinations, about the life of a spy, about, about nationalism, about gender, about equality, about, you know, Soviet values versus American values. Oh my God. There is so much there that we could have a literal actual podcast not just a podcast episode but a podcast about this show um i yeah. am i am i've just started season two so i ripped through the entire first season in about a week honestly we're watching like three episodes a night my girlfriend and yeah. i and we are obsessed we're, we're singing the theme song to each other sort of during the day kind of doing a little <laughs> yeah you know the little uh tingle you know, little da, 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 yeah exactly yeah. uh <laughs> so I am so happy you're you're into this because yeah. for my money, this has been the best show on TV for the last couple of years. Sure, sure. And it's been really frustrating because it's like people keep rudely insisting other shows are good, and I'm like, <laughs> but you're not watching The Americans clearly. <laughs> like that's, yeah, it's like no, I'm sorry, this show is better. Um, okay, so 
there's yeah it's it is hard to pick out a thing that's that's best i think that the first episode right it starts like you like i like i just i I just gave it a shot randomly but that first episode is so beautifully disorienting yes because in those opening minutes you have no idea who the relation what the relationships are between these characters who is who is who it just opens in the middle of this intelligence operation uh, Carrie Russell is seducing uh, some new Reagan staffer, yeah. and then you're thrown into this this nighttime heist, basically a kidnapping, and you have like, who the hell, like, who are these people? And and <laughs> they sound like that's the whole point. They you would never guess they're they're Soviet agents. And what ensues is this amazing, is this amazing like chase sequence uh, set to. Uh, Tusk. Yes. Uh, it's, it's this really memorable uh, sequence that really establishes from the first that this show actually has some serious action chops. Like, yes. it won't happen often. It's not really what the show is about. But when these people, like, are doing their spy stuff, it's not going to be, like, on a USA drama, right? Where, where it's sort of, <laughs> it's all, like, crummy cuts to conceal the fact that, like, nobody really, like, to conceal the fact that, like, the that nothing's very realistic, uh, that that nobody's particularly skilled uh, in in what their character is supposed to be doing. Yeah. <laughs> Here it all feels pretty damn authentic and real. Uh, but but more than that, um, I love the way this show plays around with identity and role play. Yes. Oh my god. Uh, t- the marriage is a sham, but after twenty years, is it? Uh, you know what what are these people to each other? And the fact that the first season sort of opens on, on them for the first time, kind of confronting that, uh, that, that, you know, they've been pretending to be married for so long that, well, they, they kind of are. And, and what does that mean for their work? Uh, they, they have kids together. Um, the kids are real. Uh, that part of their lives is not pretend. Uh, the, the fact that they're yes, they're they're fake Americans, except within the within the couple, you have this. It's it, the first season. You you've got this 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 uh, dynamic established where Philip, the husband, actually might have become an American. Yes, you know he, he like he's bought in. He likes it. Um, he like he 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 likes having it. He likes the easy life uh, in the West. And uh, Carrie Russell's character, uh, Elizabeth, she is very much a true believer. Yeah. And you have that tension as well. Like, she doesn't want her kids to be corrupted by the West. She resists its charms. Philip takes the approach that, no, part of our job is to play the role. Stop, you know, stop resisting it. Just just enjoy it. Be Be an American. Uh, and, and what does that mean for your relationship then to the Soviet Union? And the way all this is layered together is just utterly fantastic. Yes. Oh, my God. It, it's masterful. It's it's kind of the only word that I would really use to describe it. And there's so much, I you know, of course, sorry if this is cliche, but there's so much about gender here that's fascinating to me as well. The sort of, this is the early 80s and, you know, mm-hmm. sort, sort of second wave feminism is still very much kind of a new thing. Uh, in America, at least in sort of mainstream America. And we have what we're seeing, and and I understand this gets more complicated as the show goes on, but we have sort of what we're looking at is this sort of Soviet ideal of like women can be at least somewhat in power. They can be these these powerful agents. They can be these sort of handlers. They can be, 
you know, a little bit more, you know, you're, if you're a comrade, you're kind of, uh, you know, allowed to be uh, fully, you know, sort of in service of your country. Whereas in the FBI, you know, the American side, it's like all these like really boring white guys who are <laughs> just kind of like so incredibly sexist. And that allows, you know, the Soviet women to kind of like play up the role of, of the, you know, the dumb blonde, literally the dumb blonde often, uh, yeah. and, and kind of like use their, you know, sort of use their sexism against them in a lot of ways. And it's, God, it's so fascinating well, because, of course, the Soviet Union actually treated women poorly as well. It's just, you know, in Carrie Russell, sorry, in Elizabeth's mind, like at least in this, in her culture, she's allowed to be more. Um, and that's complicated, of course. And this is this is worth saying, especially for folks who uh, don't know this about the series. There, there is a rape scene in the in the first episode, and she was raped by one of her uh, trainers, and and that becomes an entire crux of of Philip sort of becoming completely on her side, and them seeing each other eye to eye. Him kind of sort of weirdly taking revenge on yeah. this on this total asshole who was sort of part of the operation in the very beginning of the show. Well, right. The, yeah, the guy they're trying to abduct turns out to have been her training officer, and Philip didn't know, and that's the thing, yeah. right? And it's it's this weird moment where, like, in that first episode, you realize, like, Philip's loyalty is to his family. He thinks he has one, right. and he does. And Elizabeth, I'm not sure, fully understands that until the moment where Philip discovers what happened and, like, immediately loses it and strangles the dude. Yeah. He makes uh, a choice and, there that yeah. is very important for the rest of the show, basically. Right, yeah. and, and and basically that, that launches the, the entire arc of the first season. But yeah, you brought up the uh, the, the sort of long line of, of white dudes in the FBI, <laughs> and I think that is so beautifully uh, captured by Noah Emmerich's performance as the counterintelligence agent who moves in across the street yep. <laughs> uh, from, the, from the Soviet agents. But Noah Emmerich... I don't know. He is like his whole thing, his entire career seems to be your morally compromised every man next door. Sure. Uh, he, remember, he shows up in the Truman Show, yes! and he's the dude who's totally selling out Truman, uh, like at every turn. Like he's this weird guy. He has the most like neutral looks, this bland face. Yes. Like, but he has this weird. He has a weird charisma about him. But also this this completely believable like darkness to him. He, as an actor, he, you know who he reminds me of is Fred McMurray. Sure, like sure, Fred yes. McMurray. Like yeah. one minute is making shitty flubber movies, <laughs> but then he's also the guy in the apartment and Double Indemnity. Yeah, uh, oh sort God. of the embodiment of of male like post war desperation and and anger and misogyny. That is such a perfect yeah correlation right there. Yeah, God. Oh. Yeah, and, and so like Noah Emmerich's performance, like what, what's cool about him is like he's just gotten back. He he's just sort of stopped doing what Philip and Elizabeth do, right? Yeah. Like he just he spent years being undercover as a Klansman in in the South, and now he's trying to like just lead a normal life, be normal like, again. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And the thing for him is he's he has changed, and his his work in in counterintelligence begin you know it's like he sort of stepped it's like he stepped out of the american dream right yeah. and now he's this he's in this weird outsider perspective on everything sort of stuck between the soviet union and and the us and it's that's another great tension we haven't even gotten to martha i know oh god i love martha <laughs> yeah and oh god i this is horrible i don't know that actress she cuz 
because I knew who Noah Emmerich was yeah. uh, for for years. But she is she is fantastic in this show. Yeah, let me let me look that up. because okay, because yeah. we want to we should credit this. Oh yeah, yeah, of course, of course. Uh, Allison Wright. Okay. Um, yeah. So yeah, and I think the yeah the other the other really important female character in this story uh, is is Martha, who is a secretary at the at the FBI. And I'm I'm curious what you've made of of the Martha character, right? Because because I was a little concerned because she started out just being your pathetic manipulated mouse. Yes. Right. Yes. But. I think it gets more complicated than that. Yeah, I think it is. It is much more complicated than that. And she is like absolutely the sort of, you know, at, at first she she seems like the little sort of side character, the little mouse. And then it's sort of a, you know, clearly she has some ambition. She has some ideas of her own. She is absolutely the embodiment of like the sort of working girl, you know, the early 80s kind of like, yes. oh, this is this is the, you know, not the sort of, rich or middle class kind of woman. This is sort of, you know, the the more working class woman who is looking for her way up in sort of after, you know, women's liberation is happening, you know, especially in the 70s. And this is just barely removed from the 70s, especially the first season. I think it's supposed to take place during early 1981, the very beginning of the Reagan administration. So there's so much there with her as well, like seeing her... Uh, you know, desires to move up and to do something more with her world and, and sort of the way she's being used again in this sort of very sexist world, knowing it's such a very sexist world that these men in the FBI won't, they won't think twice about her sort of snooping around because she works, you know, for Clark, one of the personas of Philip. Uh, yeah. There's a lot going on there as well. God, it's, oh, there's yeah. so many layers to this show. Oh man, I can't, I can't wait. We're going to have to talk about this so many more times yes. uh, over the coming, over the coming weeks. Cause here, like season one, great season. Season two, amazing season. Awesome. Three, season three, pretty rough. It's great. So they're all great. Oh, but yeah. it, it would, the crazy thing is like, oh, I remember season one back when the Americans was happy. <laughs> oh God. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Good. Yeah, I don't think it becomes misery porn the way like Mad Men could at sure. times, where like you have characters just continually self destructing and you get to watch it happen in slow motion. Yeah. But the Americans continues to raise the stakes. The the scars are sort of born from episode to episode and season to season. And and so like it, it's it's not like the characters get a reset at the end of a season, right? Yeah. Like everything that happened, they carry forward and it changes their relationship to the work, you know, each each season. But I I just adore this show. I, I think it's the best thing on TV. Yeah, I, I think it's utterly fantastic. It was really hard for something to top my sort of run of Hannibal this fall and then uh, my, you know, long-term love affair with the good wife and also, you know, my you know shorter but, but incredible time with the fall. And now here I am with something as compelling as all of those things and, and I think a good touch better than some of them in, in a lot of ways uh, and just in terms of how many things it's doing so, so well at the same time. Oh, God, it's... God, it's incredible. That's so, so good. Um, Awesome. So with that, I think it's time for us to head out and enjoy our weekends and watch more of the Americans, probably. Uh, This episode of Idle Weekend was produced by Chris Remo and is hosted on the Idle Thumbs Network. You can learn more about the show at idleweekend.net and send us questions for our weekend correspondence at questions at idleweekend.net. If you are enjoying the show, and we really hope that you are, and we really appreciate you listening to us, please do rate us on iTunes and tell your friends about us, friends, family, dogs, whatever, whoever listens to podcasts. It helps us out so much, and we appreciate it 
so, so much. So thank you for doing that, and please continue to do that. To keep up with the latest from us, follow us on Twitter at Idle Weekend. For Rob Zachney, this is Danielle Riendo wishing you the finest of Idle Weekends. All right, we'll just wait for this to die down. Oh, God. <laughs> this is unbelievable. Wow. Is it a power drill? No. It's like, I've never heard the sound before. It's it's clearly connected to uh, somebody's running some water in the building. But I've never heard that like high-pitched whine before. Oh, my God. That is unbearable. It sucks. Yeah. <laughs> this week, it's... This <laughs> is just fucking cursed. Oh, thank God. Okay, okay, okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. I have literally no idea what we're talking about. We're talking with Martha. <laughs> All right, I guess that does it. <sighs> Boy, Chris is going to be happy editing this piece of shit. <laughs> oh, my God. It's such trash.